Hello, I'm delighted you can join us on Search for Truth, your Bible teaching programme with Brian Johnston. It's great to have you with us and thanks for tuning in. We've reached talk number seven today in this eight-part series, so we're getting near to the completion of it. Brian looks into the scriptures once more today to see how they set out God's intentions for the form and basis of our relationship with Jesus Christ. This time Brian takes us into a scriptural perception of our relationship with Jesus as we subject ourselves to his will. So now to Brian. Okay, John. Almost 200 years ago, believers on the Lord Jesus Christ, first in Ireland and then throughout the United Kingdom, began to show revived interest in gathering to remember their Lord in a way they considered to be purely and simply biblical. They stripped away rites and ceremonies for which they could see no support in the New Testament scriptures. Institutional and denominational emphases were set aside in favour of trying to establish church fellowship purely on the basis of common life in Christ. They understood they were meeting as brothers around the Lord's table for communion. They'd arrived at a clear idea of the universal church, biblically described as the church which is his, that is, Christ's body. But the fact that they were now meeting as local groupings of believers produced a dilemma. What if someone, another believer, casually requested occasional fellowship with them? Suppose further that this was someone about whom there were concerns, concerns that perhaps his conduct was not particularly Christian. Should he or she be received to the communion table? One approach was to emphasise the unity of the body and so accept all regardless. The other contrasting approach was to stress local responsibility. In this case, respect for the Lord's table demanded that they should refuse those with a disorderly lifestyle. This generally divided state of affairs led to a search for a more biblical solution to this real practical problem. The result was to find the biblical basis for local Church of God fellowship, as in Acts chapter 2. What's more, careful reading of the New Testament showed the original local churches had not been independent, but closely interlinked as belonging to the one overall community of churches. This was recognised as being the spiritual house of God on earth although it was not the whole body of Christ in its entirety, not the universal church of all believers on Christ, for to that, of course, dead and even disobedient believers still belonged. The term house of God, which surfaced then, occurs in both Old and New Testaments. The term house of God, which surfaced, occurs in both Old and New Testaments, and a full trace of its character is required if we are to appreciate what those first so-called brethren believers glimpsed more than 125 years ago. We don't have time for anything as extensive as that, but what we can do is pick up one New Testament section which draws heavily on the rich Old Testament background surrounding this topic of God's house on earth. We have in mind Hebrews chapter 3 and the first six verses, which refers us back to the house of God in the time of Moses, known as the tabernacle or tent, where the people worship God. Let's read about it and ask ourselves what matches this today. Therefore, holy brethren, Hebrews chapter 3 begins, partakers of a heavenly calling, 
Consider Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our Confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honour than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. That's Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. As we said, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6 refers us back to the house of God during the time of Moses, around 1400 BC, when it was known as the tabernacle and was, in effect, the special tent where the people approached their God in national worship. We were asking, what might correspond to that today? We earlier introduced the universal church called the body, which is every born-again believer, as we were all baptised in the Spirit into it. We are in Christ with eternal security. The famous 8th chapter of Romans says each believer in the Lord has been chosen, called, justified and glorified in a magnificent sweep from eternity to eternity. No one who has believed Christ and been sealed with the Holy Spirit can ever possibly drop out somewhere between predestination and glorification. But while our salvation, our eternal destination with Christ, is totally secure, it's true that the Bible does mention the dread possibility of falling away. In fact, this is discussed just three chapters later in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 6, which begs the question, from what can an eternally secure believer fall away if it's not from salvation? The letter to the Hebrews supplies the answer. Not only does it raise the issue of falling away, but the context in which it does so clearly defines what's meant. For it talks about falling away not in the context of salvation and body membership of the universal church, but rather in the context of service for God within God's house on earth. That brings us right back to the last verse we read. Hebrews 3 and verse 6, Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence. If we give words their normal meaning, the house of God isn't guaranteed to include every believer, as can be seen from the rather exclusive if condition found in that verse. Allow me to recap where we've got to, for it's vital that we distinguish things that the Bible itself makes distinct. The Bible teaches that all those who are saved are in the universal body church, from which we cannot be removed since we cannot lose our salvation. For example, John 10 verse 28. However, it's at the same time possible to fall away from something, according to Hebrews 6. And what looms large in context there in Hebrews is the faithful service of God's gathered people expressed throughout the New Testament community of local churches of God. They are described as being God's house on earth, comparable to the tabernacle in the midst of God's people long ago, from which disobedient Israelites could be cut off. In other words, being in the house is about holding on to something which it's possible to lose. That which can be lost or fallen away from is not salvation. 
Therefore, it must be something beyond salvation, beyond our membership of the body. Taking our cue from the Hebrews letter, we are caused to remember the warning God gave to Moses immediately after the people's salvation from the land of Egypt. And it too was in relation to God's tabernacle house back then when he said, make sure you keep to the pattern. That was a definite if condition applied to their service for God as centred on his house back then. There's confirmation in 2 Timothy where Paul commands Timothy to hold on to the pattern of sound teaching from the Lord. This is the apostles' teaching which acts as the building plan for God's New Testament spiritual house today. In London's Westminster Cathedral, its architect Sir Christopher Wren lies buried. The inscription where he lies says, If you would see his monument, look all around you. But that's as nothing compared to the achievement of Christ. Brothers and sisters in churches of God can look around on each other and see how from hell-deserving rubble, from stones rescued from the burning, our Lord has fashioned a habitation for God in the Spirit. Our Lord is counted worthy of a greater glory than Moses, for a builder has more glory than the house he builds, and the owner of the house has more honour than a servant within it. But what does this exactly mean for our relationship with Christ? Ray Steadman once shared an analogy from his Montana ranching experience down by the Missouri River. Once, as a friend of one of the ranch hands, he got to ride a couple of old scruffy horses out the back. Later, as a friend of the owner's son, he enjoyed riding the best horses all over the ranch. What that demonstrated to him was the big difference between acquaintance with a ranch hand and acquaintance with the owner's son. Our relationship is not with Moses the servant, but with Jesus, the Son of God, who is over God's house. And so the greatest privileges are for those who form God's house, accessed through relating to Jesus as the authoritative Son over God's house. The letter to the Hebrews describes those who are brothers of Christ. It also describes those who are fellows of Christ. Hebrews 2.11 says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. All who relate to God as their Heavenly Father have the gracious privilege of being owned by Christ their Saviour as being his brothers. This is true of all believers in the body of Christ. But then again, God the Father, when addressing his Son in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9 says, Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions or above your fellows. Now the question is, who are those companions or fellows of Christ? And what's the difference anyway between being called a brother of Christ and being called a fellow of Christ? Mr. Vine, famous for his Dictionary of Bible Words says about this word, the word fellows, that it marks an even closer relationship than brethren. But just who are in that relationship with Christ? For the answer, we turn to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14 this time. It says, we have become partakers or fellows of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence fast to the end. Obviously, it's the readers themselves who are addressed in this way, in parallel with what we found in chapter 3 and verse 6, whose house we are. Companions, partakers, fellows or sharers, it's the same word found in the same context, which means we can safely assume it all refers to the same people.
the readers of this letter. Some New Testament believers did fall away from being sharers in the community of local biblical churches at this time of writing nearly 2,000 years ago. As a result, they didn't hold fast to service in the house for God on earth, but did remain members of the body of Christ, of course, since it cannot be dismembered, as the Bible's equally clear teaching on eternal security demonstrates. I hope you enjoyed Brian's talk, and if you have any comments or questions for Brian, do get in touch using the addresses I'll give you in a moment. And there's also a transcript book for all the talks in this series, and it's available free on request by asking for the title, Our Relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, you can order this book by email or by post, and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. And you may be interested to know that you can listen again to many of these broadcasts off-air by audio or podcast uh, MP3 versions. If you go to www.searchfortruth.podbean.com, you can browse the list of previous talks, which you'll see has been sorted into categories, and that'll help you find uh, what you're looking for. Well, we've almost finished for today, but once again, many thanks for the privilege of your company, and it'd be great if you could join us again next week for the final talk in this series, when Brian will be dipping into the Bible to discover the nature of our relationship with Christ in worship. Until then, it's very best wishes from our Bible teacher Brian, studio technician David, our singers and me, John. Bye for now, and may God richly bless you. The soul on Jesus has...